Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I'm here, as always, with my co-host and friend, Danny Bessner, and we are very pleased and privileged uh, to be joined one final time by Rashid Khalidi, Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies and author of The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017, to talk about uh, one more segment in his book. Professor Khalidi, thank you so much for coming back uh, and, and joining us again. Thank you both so much for having me. So we are uh, going to get to the fourth, what you what you call the fourth kind of declaration of war on Palestine, which is the uh, 1982 Israeli invasion of southern Lebanon. But to, to lay the ground for that, let's start with sort of the uh, usual question that we start these episodes with is the uh, last time on question. Uh, we left off with the end of the 1967 war. And since we're sort of going to be leaving a little bit, you know, the occupied territories behind in this episode, can you just sort of give people a sense of the occupation and and what kind of transpired following the 1967 war for Palestinians still living in the West Bank and Gaza? Right. Well, Israel uh, tried to impose what it called a benign occupation. And it did so by essentially co-opting Palestinian labor power. And so you had a lot of Palestinians working in the Israeli economy in the late 60s and into the uh, 70s and right up, right up really through the 80s for the first couple decades after the occupation. At the same time, it rigorously uh, cracked down on any forms of self-expression, nationalist sentiment, organization against the occupation. And the Israelis thought that they had uh, always for the best and the best of all possible worlds until uh, the Intifada uh, of 1987 broke out. And they realized that that whole situation was untenable. Uh, the Israeli security establishment realized that as well as Israeli public opinion. Um, and that changed everything. Essentially, the Palestinians had been denied, you know, any form of political rights. And Israel thought, you know, as most colonial occupiers do, if we give them prosperity compared to where they were before, they'll shut up and not demand the kind of things that normal people demand, their, their political their, their, and, their, and their national rights. Obviously, it didn't work. Uh, and so the first intifada from 87 uh, until uh, uh, the early 1990s really changed everything. And it's a very, very important event in Palestinian history because it's one of the few times I think that the Palestinians, using mainly nonviolent means, actually forced Israel to change its policies. Israeli governments had held out against negotiating with the PLO. In the interim, they had occupied parts of southern Lebanon in the late 70s. And then we're going to talk about the 82 war in a minute. And during the 82 war, with the aim of crushing Palestinian nationalism. And by 1987, it was clear that even though they had driven the PLO from Beirut in 1982, that had not worked. Palestinian nationalism was not just located in Beirut or with the PLO. Palestinian nationalism was all over the occupied territories in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Jerusalem. So Israel was forced to change course. So that's a, that's a very brief oversight of what happens in the occupied territories between 1967 and the 1990s. So I want to lay the, the set the context for uh, the 1982 war. And obviously the, the, the main context is the, the civil war that was already going on in Lebanon. But there is a regional broader regional context happening here, which uh, I, I sort of have in my notes here, shorthand, the Camp David process. But really, right. uh, you know, we're talking about the United States in the 1970s going from you know, supporting Israel to really supporting Israel. Mm -hmm. um, Terry aid skyrockets. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a concerted effort basically to do diplomacy on Israel's behalf in terms of, uh, you know, the relationship with Egypt and bringing Egypt into to normalizing relations with Israel. Your book is, has been, uh, you know, it's so much, it's about so much more than just the Israel-Palestine. It's, it's about the entire world's kind of war on the Palestinians. And I, I, I think this is a big piece to, to understand, give people a sense of kind of what's happening at the great power level and, and how it's affecting Palestinians at right. this, this decade. Right. I think it actually has to be understood in the context of the Cold War. The United States becomes Israel's main arms supplier 
in the late 60s, essentially as part of a Cold War struggle with the Soviet Union. So Israel becomes a favored U.S. proxy as against favored Soviet proxies like Egypt and Syria. Um, until 1967, and for several decades, except for 48, when the United States armed Israel, as did the Soviets, until 1967, 68, 69, most Israeli weapons came from Britain and France. This changes in the late 60s with the so-called war of attrition along the Suez Canal, where the Soviets are feeding high, high-end Soviet equipment to the Egyptians, and the United States begins to feed high-end American equipment, F-4 Phantoms, Hawk anti-aircraft missiles, and so on and so forth. And this comes to a, to a peak during the 1973 war, after which American aid to Israel really balloons. And it's from the 70s onwards that the United States uh, begins to feed billions of dollars in aid annually to Israel, mainly military, but also at the outset economic. And Israel becomes by far the largest recipient of U.S. aid from the 70s for decades thereafter. And this is, and this is entirely related to the Cold War. This has nothing to do with the brown eyes of the Israelis or the brown eyes of the Arabs. This is the United States in a, in a regional rivalry with the Soviet Union. Uh, and the Soviet arms for the Arabs are similarly a function of their rivalry with the United States. They have no love for the Arabs at all. On the contrary, they, they, they look down on them. But they give them a top-of-the-line Soviet weaponry in order to wage this proxy war. The Camp David process really comes out of things that Kissinger does, which are directed under under President Nixon, which are directed at winning Egypt away from the Soviets and over to the American camp. And that's the big change that happens after the 1973 war. Egypt becomes an American satellite from being a Soviet satellite or becomes an American, if you want to use the, the, the more polite term, an American ally from being a Soviet ally. And this is achieved essentially at the expense of the Palestinians. Kissinger systematically uh, brings about ceasefire agreements between Israel and, and the Egyptians, disengagement agreements, and between Israel and the Israelis without ever touching the Palestine issue. President Carter comes into office promising to change this. He come, he's elected in 76. He comes into office in January 77 promising to change this, to bring the Soviets into a peace process to address the Palestine issue. He talks for the first time for an American president about a Palestinian homeland. And he's turned around within a year. Begin said that, basically outmaneuver Carter. And at the Camp David summit, which produces the 1978 Camp David Accords, the Palestinians are basically shafted. Uh, the vision that Israeli Prime Minister Begin has for the Palestinians, which is there to be hewers of wood and drawers of water, to have no political rights, the West Bank and the, and, and the occupied territories, all of them belong to Israel. Uh, Israel, is, the, Israel is, is ultimately to be the sovereign over them. Israel is to have perpetual security control. Israel is to be free to settle anywhere it wants in the occupied territories. He basically secures all of this in the Camp David Accords in return for making peace with Egypt, in return for returning the Sinai to Egypt, which brings Egypt into the American column, as it were. So America wins the Cold War in the Middle East in a sense, through Kissinger's accords with Egypt, Israel, and Syria, and through the Camp David Accords of 78 and the Peace Treaty of 1979, and the Palestinians are the big losers. They are basically told you will get autonomy under absolute Israeli control, with Israel controlling land, water, airspace, entry, exit, and the ability to settle anywhere it wants. And that is the reality we have been in, frankly, ever since 1978. Begin sets this very low ceiling for the Palestinians, which is the basis of American and Israeli policy from that moment onwards. I mean, we are living with the successors of Begin's approach in Israeli governments, uh, with a couple of exceptions ever since uh, the late 1970s. And so that's where we and, and, and that, 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 that's where we get ultimately the Oslo Accords. The Oslo Accords are just a, a, a gussying up of, of Begin's vision. Uh, in the nine, in the, in in 1978, Professor, since this is the last time you'll be joining us, I do have a methodological question. So, as someone mm -hmm. who studied this, you know, the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, and the profession was all about agents, you know, and sort of focusing on agents and resistance. So, I, as as someone who studied this resistance movement, I was wondering if you had uh, some thought about that. And then I've got another one, but that's a big one. So, you know, as someone who really came of intellectual age and you know domination in the arts of resistance, James Scott world. What, what is your take on that methodological question? And then I've got one more after that. 
Well, um, you know, the Palestinians have resisted in various ways since the Balfour Declaration, since this thing really began as an international conflict. And since uh, the Zionist movement was able to implant itself with British support in Palestine, uh, starting in 1917, uh, they've resisted with petitions, demonstrations, nonviolent means. They've resisted with uprisings in the 20s, three of them in 1936-39, a huge one. And they've resisted with armed struggle uh, at various times in the 50s and the 60s and going forward. And they've resisted, uh, in some cases successfully, I would argue with the first intifada successfully through a mainly nonviolent uh, approach, which was the first intifada. It was civil disobedience. It was demonstrations. It was all kinds of quite intelligently thought out means of defying Israel. And it worked in the sense of forcing the Israelis to recognize that the status quo could not hold. They could not control the occupied territories this way. And you had an extraordinarily shrewd Israeli leader in Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who comes into office and understands that you can't go on like this. And so he changes Israel's whole policy. In response to the successful resistance of the Palestinians, this has to be understood. This is not, you know, the goodwill of Yitzhak Rabin. Yitzhak Rabin was the guy who, as defense minister, ordered the breaking of bones of Palestinian demonstrators. Rabin is the man who, with one of his colleagues, is responsible for the expulsion of the entire population of the city of Lid, Lidda in 1948. This is no humanitarian. He does what he sees is, is in Israel's best interest because the Intifada has proven Israel cannot control the situation. And so he begins to talk to the PLO. He accepts that there's a Palestinian people. He begins the negotiations that ultimately lead to the Oslo Accords. Uh, and those, those represent major changes in the Israeli position, but only so far. Um, so uh, going back to your, your, your core question, which is about resistance, Resistance succeeded up to a point. The problem is that other forms of resistance, diplomacy, public, uh, trying to change public opinion abroad, the Palestinians proved less adept at. So there, I, I think the first intifada is an enormous success, but what follows is a failure. Was that failure overdetermined, I guess, is what I'm getting at? Is there a contingent world where there's a, the Palestinian people today are in a different situation? Well, the Palestinian people today are in a different situation. I think if you look at the leaderships of the mandate period from 1917 until 1948, and you look at the leaderships of the PLO generation who start in the 50s and reveal themselves in the 60s and dominate things, some of them, decrepit octogenarians are still there in Ramallah, you'll see a worldview which is extremely limited and an understanding of global politics which is narrow and blinkered. This generation, the generation that is rising up today in the occupied territories, and in the diaspora, including people in the United States and in Europe and in Australia and South America and so forth, these people are savvy beyond measure, unlike the leaders of the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, unlike the PLO leaders. The PLO leaders had a better understanding of the world. They understood, for example, non-alignment. They understood the, the, the Cold War in a certain sense, but they were still blinkered. But these kids, these younger people, People in their, in their teens, their 20s, and their 30s, these people have a, a, a much wider, broader, deeper, in my view, understanding of some of these uh, dynamics. Um, but unfortunately, the people who made the deals in the 1990s were the same blinkered backwards leadership of the PLO that had scored some successes, to be fair, in the 60s and the 70s, but were just not up to uh, what they were facing by the 1990s. And then just one quick methodological question, then we can return to the story. Is You said something interesting, which is that Sadat and Begin outmaneuvered Carter. So right. when we're looking at this from a, a sort of causal story, it's the meso level, the middle level that was more, most important Absolutely. here for understanding the Absolutely. regional level. Okay, I just wanted to clarify that. President Carter and his Secretary of State, Cyrus Vance, intended to have a comprehensive solution of this problem, including the Palestinian aspect of it. And he intended to do that with the Soviet Union. They issued a joint communique with the Soviets in 1977, right after he was inaugurated, actually. And they had a plan. That plan was completely overturned by Begin, by Cyrus Sadat going to Jerusalem and doing a bilateral one-on-one -on -one deal with Israel, excluding the other Arabs, including the Palestinians, excluding the Soviets, going to the United States and saying, you want us to be 
your satellite, your ally, whatever term you want to use, we're going to go this way. And then Begin basically outmaneuvered Sadat at Camp David. Not that Sadat really cared, I would argue. Sadat wanted to get Sinai back. That's all he cared about. And he got Sinai back. That this was at the expense of the Palestinians and of his Syrian allies in the 1973 war, he didn't give a damn. I was present when Palestinian leaders were talking to an American delegation, and they said they'd just come back from a visit to Sadat, and Sadat, and they'd ask him, how could you, how could you double-cross your Syrian allies? And he said to them, and they reported this in this meeting I attended, well, they double-crossed us in the past. We don't care. We're double-crossing them. Um, so that, that was, that was the, the that, and you're absolutely right. It was the middle level. It wasn't the Americans and the Soviets who decided this. It was Begin and Sadat. And then, in my view, Begin. Uh, decisively at, at Camp David and in the peace treaty that followed. Let's get uh, back on the road to, to Lebanon. I think for people to understand how the fourth declaration of war becomes an, an Israeli invasion of southern Lebanon, right? Uh, we have to understand the geographical shift here. So uh, can you give people uh, just a brief sketch of sure. what happens, the PLO moving into Lebanon in sure. the late 60s uh, with the Cairo Agreement and then the Black September events in Jordan sure. that really forced this shift yeah. of gravity and, and uh, how the, the PLO kind of center of gravity becomes uh, the camps in Lebanon? Well, the groups that make up the PLO begin to coalesce in the 50s and become, you know, much more effective in the 60s. And they galvanize Palestinian opinion. And the, the Palestinian national movement is reborn. It had sort of collapsed after 1948. And they, they resuscitated in the 50s and especially in the 60s. And they then take over the PLO, which had been created by the Egyptian government in order to control the Palestinians. And instead of controlling them, they control it, as it were. This happens in the late 60s. Uh, at the same time, the PLO is basing itself in Syria, in Lebanon, and in Jordan. And the Jordanians, the Jordanian regime cannot tolerate this. Jordan was essentially established by the British to be a sort of protective shield for British interests, of course, but also for the Zionist movement in Palestine. And the Jordanian regime has always operated with British support or American support. And the, the rise of the PLO in Jordan is intolerable to the Americans. It's intolerable to the Israelis. So it's crushed in 7071, and the PLO moves its operations to Lebanon. Um, this provokes all kinds of Israeli attacks on Lebanon. Israel's approach is not just to attack the, the PLO or the Palestinians. It's to attack the host state, to make that host state act against uh, the PLO. Uh, that's what they do in Jordan until the Jordanians move. That's what they do in Syria. That's what they do, especially in Lebanon. And this, this is ongoing from the late 60s. And you have all kinds of crises between the Palestinians and the Lebanese, with some Lebanese supporting the PLO and others uh, opposed uh, to it. And that's one of the dynamics that starts the civil war in Lebanon uh, in, the, in the early 1970s. The Lebanese army attacks the Palestinian camps in 73. Civil war breaks out in 75, and the PLO is drawn into it. In fact, the PLO is part of it, because one of the things that the right-wing uh, groups like the Phalangist Party and so forth are objecting to is the, is the presence of, of the PLO in Lebanon uh, with, a, with an agreed status that, as you mentioned, the Cairo Accords, that President said that, sorry, President uh, Abdel Nasser, Jamal Abdel Nasser brokers, which gave the PLO control of the camps and, 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 and an agreed status in Lebanon. The right wing in Lebanon is, is, is viscerally opposed to this. And this is one of many motors of the Lebanese civil war. There are also important domestic motors of the Lebanese civil war, but the PLO is drawn into it and is bogged down. And Kissinger at this stage intervenes and helps broker an understanding between Israel and Syria, whereby Syria intervenes against the Palestinians during the civil war in 1976. So this is one of the reasons in this book that I talk about the Palestinians not just facing the Zionist movement or not just facing Israel. They face Great Britain and it's the height of its imperial power. They face the United States. But in many cases, they're facing Arab actors like the Jordanian regime, like Syria under Hafez al-Assad, which sends its troops into Lebanon to fight the PLO in 1976 with a green light from the United States, which brokered a deal uh, with Israel to have the Syrians do this. Um, this leads us up finally to an Israel. This doesn't work. This leads us up to an Israeli invasion of the South in 78. This doesn't work. And so uh, the, the Begin government, which had just done its deal with Egypt, the, the Camp David Accords, and later the Peace Treaty of 1979, plans an invasion of South, Southern Lebanon, a major invasion, not just of Southern Lebanon, but of all of Lebanon. And that's the 1982 war. 
uh, for which Israel is very careful to get an American green light. The Israeli armed forces have been massed along the northern border of their country at least four times over the last few months. By June, tensions were at their height, and the Israeli military were finally given the goal. The Syrian intervention strikes me, and uh, I'm curious uh, if, if I'm on the right track here, but it strikes me as, you know, in the absence of an Egyptian kind of uh, leash on the PLO, somebody has the idea, uh, I'm sure Assad included, uh, has the idea to put a Syrian leash on the PLO. And that, that yes. explains part of this intervention is Assad trying to... Absolutely. Uh, and there are even some factions, I think, within the PLO. Is, is that true that we're sort of aligned sure. with Syria that he tries to play on? But I, I'm, I'm interested in this sort of U.S.-Syrian dynamic and how that played out because Syria, of course, has not been exactly on great terms with the United States over the years. But uh, uh, what was the what was the sort of discussion that went on there between uh, between the well, two countries? You know, Assad has seen that in shifting into the American camp, Sadat has gotten a great deal. And he himself gets a disengagement agreement whereby the city of Quneitra is returned to Syria. So he's gotten something, not much, but something. And so there are all kinds of enticements that Kissinger is dangling in front of the Syrian regime in order to get it to do American bidding vis-a-vis the PLO. And you're absolutely right. At the same time, the Syrian regime itself wants to put a leash on the PLO, just as it wants the Jordanians to follow their lead, just as it wants the Lebanese government to follow their lead, because this is a situation where Egypt has left the Arab League. Egypt has left the Arab camp. Egypt has made a separate peace with Israel. Egypt has made itself a pariah. Egypt has accepted the demilitarization of Sinai. Egypt has accepted a reduction in its army. Egypt has made peace with Israel. It's out of the war. It's gone. It doesn't exist for purposes of the balance of power with Israel. And so both in terms of balancing Israel and in terms of his own regional power, you know, ambitions, Assad wants to put a leash on the PLO, as well as on Lebanon, as well as on Jordan. Um, and so that's all, all involved in the dynamic, as well as his desire to do something for the U.S. in the hope that Kissinger will do something for him. And this, this really continues into the 1980s. Uh, we, see this, we see this during the 82 war, where the Syrians move equipment and move their intelligence files out of Beirut before the Israelis invade. <laughs> so, you know, th- th- there's this delicate dance going on between Israel and Syria, never acknowledged by either side, of course, and continuing to this very day um, b- between the two uh, ostensible opponents. And that's also true uh, as between the United States and Syria. The United States has had all kinds of understandings with this regime over decades, going back, as I've said, to the 1970s. So, uh, you, I mean, you've already mentioned that, that n- the 82 war didn't, wasn't the first time Israel had intervened in Lebanon because of the PLO. They they do this, you know, periodically throughout the first uh, several years of the civil war. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, maybe go into a, a little more detail about uh, one of the dynamics here, which you mentioned was it's, it's a tax on the host state. It's not just a tax on the PLO. It's meant right. to create an environment where, you know, Shia living in southern Lebanon turn on the Palestinians because they feel the Palestinians are causing them to suffer, where right. Sunnis in Beirut turn on the Palestinians because of these, you know, repeated Israeli invasions. How how did that play out and what did that, you know, kind of do to, I, I, I want to say Lebanese politics, this is the middle of civil war, so maybe just kind of the dynamics of the right. war. How were they affected by these first Israeli interventions? Well, the, the, I mean, proof of what I'm talking about I think is can 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 be seen in the first big Israeli attack on Lebanon in 1968, where they attack Lebanese airport, Beirut airport, and destroy a bunch of Middle East Airlines planes, the flag carrier of Lebanon. They don't attack the Palestinians; they attack Lebanese capitalism, I mean, which is <laughs> the central thing in Lebanon. Yo, here's your biggest business. Boom! We blew up a bunch of your airliners and we hit your airport. Um, and they do this all the time. I mean, they knock out electricity generators. They, you know. Uh, generating plants. They do that kind of thing. Uh, you want to support the Palestinians later on, they do this vis-a-vis Hezbollah. You want to allow Hezbollah to operate? We'll take out your energy, your electricity generating capacity. We'll take out your oil refiners, whatever it may be. Uh, so this is a systematic approach uh, that Israel adopts, uh, attacking infrastructure. We talk about Russian attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure. I mean, this is not... 
That's not the first time this has been done. So the, the, the background to 82 uh, has to do with the, the, the approach that Begin and his defense minister, Ariel Sharon, take to the PLO. They figure that they can settle and colonize and absorb the occupied territories if they can smash the PLO invaders. And they essentially, as I've said, sell this plan to American Secretary of State Haig. This is the Reagan administration. This is a time when the Cold War has once again come to the forefront of the very small brain of American foreign policy, where basically one or two simple ideas uh, uh, completely occupy what little brain space foreign policy specialists. Professor, have. how well, dare I, you? I, I'm sorry to say this, but you know, you look at... You no, look it's at, true, of course. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Of the Reagan administration with things like Star Wars and you know, no, absolutely. We agree 1,000%. <laughs> I'm sure you do, and I hope most of your listeners do. In any case, um, basically, Begin and Sharon sell susceptible and naive and, in my view, rather ignorant American leaders like the Secretary of State, at, at that stage, General Haig, and, and the President and his national security advisors, um, on the idea that this would be a great blow to the Soviet Union. We will knock out the PLO, drive them from Lebanon. We will knock the Syrians out of Lebanon. We will install a friendly government. We'll make peace with Israel, and all will be the best for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Well, you know, the only part of this that comes to fruition is the expulsion of the PLO from Lebanon. But that does not end Palestinian nationalism. In fact, it's one of the motors later on for the first Intifada five years later uh, in in the occupied territories. Uh, but that's another story. So the Americans essentially deluded by this idiotic Cold War interpretation of the entire politics of the Middle East, sign on to uh, uh, Sharon's plan. And it really is Sharon's plan. He tells Begin some of it, but not all of it. He tells the cabinet even less and almost none of it. He intends from the beginning to do what he tells uh, uh, Secretary of State Haig. He does not tell the cabinet or even, I think, the prime minister. We're not exactly sure of that, but we're sure what he told the cabinet. Um, he doesn't tell them any of this. I'm going to expel the PLO from Lebanon. I'm going to smash the Syrians. I'm going to install a puppet government. I'm going to get, he doesn't say it's, it's, it's described as a limited security operation. It is in fact a massive, it's one of Israel's bigger wars, um, divisions and divisions and divisions of troops. Um, the entire air force and Navy are used in this, in this operation and it devastates Southern Lebanon, uh, and, 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 and many other parts of Lebanon, Beirut included, uh, 17,000 people are killed. Uh, most of them civilians, as always. Um, and the, the, the southern part of the country is devastated, and much of Beirut is, is very badly hit during the war. You uh, write about this part, uh, this part of the book really from an almost first-person perspective because you were at the American University of Beirut at the time. Uh, you observed a lot of this happening uh, as, while you were in Lebanon, I wonder if you can sort of tell people, you know, give people a sense of uh, what it was like to be there and your personal experiences in right. this, this, at least in the, the first part of this invasion, as it become, became clear that it was much more intense than uh, maybe had been expected or was much right. larger than had been right. expected. Well, I was work. I was, I was teaching full time at the American University of Beirut. I was working part-time as a researcher uh, at the Institute for Palestine Studies. I was working in those years on, I think, Soviet Middle East policy. But I was also, I had also helped my wife set up um, the English service of the Palestine News Agency. So I was involved with the PLO. And I often served as an unofficial spokesperson. I mean, I, I, I was an off-record source, a Palestinian source today. I was never named. I was never a spokesperson. But I, I, was, I was involved with Palestinian politics in those years. At, although I was mainly an academic and I was writing and teaching and so forth. Um, and so when the war broke out, as you say, I think it was much more, much bigger than anybody expected. It turns out Arafat expected it. <laughs> we, I later learned that, that Arafat and some of the PLO leadership knew pretty much what was coming. I was present at a briefing given by a senior Soviet official, Yevgeny Primakov, who later on became the head of the KGB and prime minister of Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So he was an intelligence guy, but he was the head of all of these important uh, 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 Soviet research centers. He was at the Institute of World Political Economy. He was head of the Soviet, uh, Soviet Oriental Institute. He published a half dozen books. 
he came in and gave us a briefing at the Institute for Palestine Studies in which he said, basically, the Israelis are going to attack. We're not capable of supporting Lebanon and the PLO. We're not even sure that we'll be able to help the Syrians who are also going to be a target. So we knew this. We knew something was coming. Everybody knew something was coming. Uh, I don't think, however, anybody realized it would start with this heavy bombardment of Beirut and an invasion by tens and tens and tens of thousands, 150,000 in the end, or maybe more Israeli troops are involved, uh, marching on three axes up, you know, up the coast, up the mountains, up the Bekaa Valley, uh, pitched battles with the Syrians until the Syrians uh, sign a ceasefire with Israel. And then Beirut is besieged. And the Israelis pump periodically bombard the city. I, uh, I uh, published a book um, about appeal of decision-making during the 1982 war. It's entitled Under Siege. And the cover has a picture of what I think is a 175-millimeter Israeli gun, courtesy of the U.S. military. It's an American weapon um, being used to bombard Beirut. This is, of course, uh, in keeping with the Leahy Amendment, a defensive use of American military equipment to use 175-millimeter artillery to bombard uh, the capital city of Lebanon. That's defensive. Um, the people who the people who allowed those sales should be tri- should be criminally prosecuted for violating U.S. law, but that's another story. Um, and so I was actually at the university when the war started. My wife was working uh, in the Fakhani area where the PLO headquarters were located, um, and my two daughters were at school, and we didn't know it at the time, but my wife was pregnant, so she came. She had to escape from this area that was under this heavy bombardment. And I had to go pick up our kids, our two elder, elder, our two daughters, the, our older children, um, uh, in the middle of this horrific bombardment. They, they weren't bombarding where I was, where I was in West Beirut. They were bombarding the area of the Arab University, Fakhani, uh, adjacent to the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps, where the PLO was located, and where my wife was working that day. So I, I start the I start the chapter on the war with that story. My kids were jumpy for years after that war. Uh, the little one who was in his mother's womb, he would jump anytime there was a loud sound for the longest time. And the girls were, they were clearly very much, very much affected by it, as would any child be by, you know, hearing 2,000 pound bombs being dropped within a mile or two and artillery shells landing and so forth. So I, I do, I do tell um, the story uh, from my own perspective, but also using documents that I have found, including the, the, the material that I used for this book, Under Siege which was published quite a while ago. That's a new, that's a new edition. It was reissued. Let's talk a little bit about the um, Arab response, I guess, to put it uh, generously <laughs> to the Israeli invasion, to be, be charitable, the, the Arab response. And uh, the Reagan plan, which was the kind of, you know, very easy way that the Reagan administration blew them off. And, and you talk uh, in some detail about Really, just the the abandonment essentially of the Palestinians by by the rest of the Arab League at, at this point. Yeah, well, you know, you would think that something called the Arab League would respond vigorously to Israel's siege, bombardment, and later occupation of an Arab capital. They don't. They go running to the Americans and beg the Americans to do something. And what the Americans do is to produce the Reagan Plan, which has absolutely no effect. Begin turns it down. Essentially, Begin vetoes the Reagan plan. Yet another example of the tail wagging the dog. I mean, supposedly the United States is the superpower and supposedly Israel is a client. But I think that on issues having to do with Palestine, not issues having to do with vital American interests like oil and the Cold War. There, the United States tells Israel exactly what it wants to have happen. And it happens. In other words, the Israelis resist leaving Sinai. The Americans make them leave Sinai. Because we're, the United States is winning Egypt over. And that's, that's a Cold War objective that's far more important than the Israelis. However, where Palestine is concerned, and this is one of the arguments of this book, where Palestine is concerned, there's no vital American interest that U.S. policymakers see as being involved. And so they Can are we just pause to- on that for two seconds? Does that suggest uh, anything larger about human rights in sort of the American firmament of absolutely. foreign policy? Could absolutely. you just talk to that for a second in terms of the structural sure. level? It doesn't sure. matter, basically? Sure. Um, I think this is a perfect example of how little things like human rights or national rights or anybody's rights, for that matter, uh, uh, concern U.S. policymakers. Where it's something like oil or defense industry sales to Saudi Arabia, the United States will walk all over Israeli objections. 
where it's something like winning a major country like Egypt away from the Soviet Union or forcing the Israelis to give back a chunk of occupied Syrian territory in order to get some advantage in the Cold War. The United States pays no attention whatsoever. I mean, they'll argue with them and fight with them and so on, but they always get their way, uh, American diplomats and policymakers, invariably. I, I go through a few examples of this in the book, but the examples are myriad. It's very, very clear that there are things that are important to American policymakers, economic interests, strategic interests, and there are things that are of absolutely no concern to them, democracy, human rights, national rights. No concern whatsoever. If, they, if, it, if it's convenient to push that, they will. Uh, President Carter comes into office to his enormous credit talking about a Palestinian homeland and Palestinian rights, and he's shut down within less than a year. Uh, uh, by Begin and Sadat. Uh, and and you, you hear them bleating from time to time about Palestinian rights, but they will do absolutely nothing to uh, uh, see to it that those rights are respected. I mean, you can see this in the occupied territories today. People talk about Israeli security in a situation where 100 people have been shot down in the West Bank, half or more of them, civilians by the Israeli military. And a dozen or two dozen Israelis have been killed in, inside Israel, mainly, but also more recently, Israeli soldiers. Uh, and the United States doesn't bat an eyelid. Uh, clearly, th- those issues of uh, entire populations being under curfew for days, how homes being bulldozed uh, because one person who lived there is accused of a, of a terrorist act, whatever it may be, these things do not move American policy. Did not then, do not now. Uh, uh, I think a, a very good example of that, which I want to get to in a, a moment, is the U.S. response to the Sabrin Shatila massacre. But exactly. before we get to that, this Sabrin Shatila actually happens a bit just after sort of the main phase of this conflict, after the PLO agrees uh, to decamp and uh, head off to eventually it's Tunisia. But what, maybe you could just talk about the, the negotiations that went on and the, the deal that the PLO reached to, right. uh, to leave Lebanon and then we can uh, you know, talk about the atrocity. Right. Well, uh, very soon after the siege starts, the Israelis make their demands very clear. They want the PLO removed from Lebanon, not just Beirut, from all of Lebanon. Um, and it soon, the American mediator, the, American, the presidential envoy, a man named Ambassador Philip Habib, uh, comes to Lebanon to, to basically see to it that Israel gets its way, as far as this is concerned. And he starts a negotiation indirectly via Lebanese intermediaries with the PLO. Now, the United States had had various direct clandestine contacts with the PLO. But this is done essentially through Lebanese intermediaries. The, the, the then prime minister, a man named Shafiq Wazan, a former prime minister, a man named Saib Salem, and other Lebanese intermediaries, security officers, and so on. And the PLO at first resists the idea of leaving, but it very quickly becomes clear that Lebanese opinion, especially the opinion of the Sunni population of Beirut and of other parts of Lebanon that had always been supportive of the Palestinians, uh, had reached its limits and was really worried about their city being destroyed. And so they begin to put pressure. I mean, Wazan and Saib Salam are examples of this Sunni uh, elite. The prime minister of Lebanon is always a Sunni. The president is always a Maronite. So you have a pr- pr- prime minister and a former prime minister, both Sunnis, telling the PLO, well, you know, really, you got to go because our, 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 our city is going to be destroyed and they're going to beat you eventually. Um, and so eventually the PLO comes around to the idea that, yes, we will leave Beirut, but we demand guarantees for the safety of the civilian population, which we will leave behind. Guarantees which they eventually get in the form of an American statement on white paper, no letterhead, uh, in which the United States says, yes, uh, there will be guarantees for the safety of the civilian populations left behind. And on that basis, the PLO agrees to leave. Um, It leaves at the end of August of 1982. The peacekeeping force sent uh, American, French, Italian troops sent to supervise that process almost immediately withdraw. So there's no buffer between the the Palestinian populations of the city of Beirut and the Israelis. Israelis are outside of West Beirut. The Lebanese army is taking over in West Beirut, the area that the PLO evacuated. And then the president-elect of Lebanon, Bashir Ismail, who's the leader of the phalangist, a leader of the phalangist party and the head of the Lebanese forces militias, which are allied to Israel. I mentioned Israel bombarding Lebanon at various times since the 60s. At the same time, they were funneling arms and money to these right wing militias. 
starting a, few, a number of years before the 82 war. So he's their ally. He's their client, as it were. And when not enough deputies arrive at the National Assembly to vote for him, Israeli armored personnel carriers, uh, armored APCs, armored personnel carriers, um, kindly and solicitously go and collect them and bring them uh, to uh, Parliament so they can vote for him. He's voted in. He becomes he's president-elect, and then he's blown up in an attack carried out apparently by a Syrian agent. And that is the trigger for Israel entry into West Beirut. It surrounds the Palestinian camps and it, it, it allows through its lines into these camps. It sends through its lines into these camps, members of these right-wing militias who carry out the massacres, um, uh, 17, 18 and 19 September of 1982 with Israeli, Israeli forces surrounding the camps and firing flares to illuminate uh, the, the butchers' work uh, in, in the camps. Uh, Israel, we know from documents um, that were obtained uh, by Time magazine when Sharon sued them for claiming that he was responsible for the massacre, documents that we've obtained um, show that the Israelis were fully aware of what the phalangists and other right-wing militias intended to do. They intended to carry out massacres. They had done so in South Lebanon in various places. They told the Israelis, this is what we're going to do. Bashir Ismail said, we're going to turn uh, Sabra and Shatila into a zoo and a parking lot. We're going to destroy it. And the Israelis kindly provided bulldozers for the people carrying out the massacres. So the idea that Israel was not a partner in this is absurd. Um, it is, an, in fact, an idea that the Khan Commission uh, sustained, the commission of inquiry into the massacres. It found various Israelis responsible to a certain degree. But the fact that Israel organized and was in cahoots with the phalangists is something that Israel has never actually uh, admitted. And the American responsibility has to do with the fact that the Americans could and should have told the Israelis, A, don't enter West, West Beirut, and B, don't enter the refugee camps, and C, uh, uh, or surround them, and C, don't send your, 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 your client militias in to massacre the Palestinians. The Americans don't do that. Um, we have the, 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 the transcripts of meetings between the American envoys and uh, Sharon, and Sharon bullies the Americans pretty much the way he bullied everybody, including the Israeli cabinet. Um, and the Americans basically roll over and play dead, and the massacres take place. It is an American responsibility. The United States gave commitments to the effect that not, no such thing could happen, and it did happen. The immensity of the crime shocked the world. The refugee camps of Sabra and Shatila offered the softest of targets. I actually want to talk about Sharon, what Sharon is thinking here. But but um, the the U.S. response, um, you know, you you read kind of, you know, the New York Times accounts or, or some of, you know, Western media accounts of uh, the massacre. And you get the sense that, oh, the Reagan administration read the Israelis, the riot act when they found out that all this stuff is going on. It, it has the feel of uh, sort of. You know, I, I'm stunned to find out there's gambling going on at this casino uh, <laughs> as a reaction. I mean, I, I just wonder what your, your your take on that is, because there is I mean, they, they do uh, supposedly kind of sit the Israeli ambassador down and, and give him this kind of you know list of uh, angry talking points or whatever. But but uh, it's hard to believe that they were just completely caught by surprise that this happened, it, given the combustibility of the situation, the phalangists, the, you know, uh, the assassination of Jamael, uh, and, and just what was going on at the time. Well, two things. The first is that, yes, the, uh, the, about the New York Times. The New York Times coverage at the time actually wasn't that bad. Uh, someone who, in, in, in my view, has not shown very well since Tom Friedman was the bureau chief in Beirut, and he and uh, 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 Lauren Jenkins of the Washington Post got Pulitzers for their coverage of the massacre. They did a very good job of covering the massacre. I don't think he did a very good job of covering every, anything else the rest of his career, but he certainly did. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not singling Tom out for, for, for no, no, criticism. I just mean there is this outstanding. As it's just in are, general, there's this sort of credulous acceptance of the idea that, that the Reagan administration was so right. angry and offended. The, that other, the other thing, they did report that at the time uh, uh, from Washington. Uh, that wasn't Friedman's work. Uh, at the same time, to, to their credit as well, the New York Times later on published a whole series of documents that one of my former students, Seth Ansiska, discovered in the Israeli archives and in American archives which point to American responsibility and Israeli responsibility for the massacres. So they did later, much later, publish a dossier uh, 
to that effect. Now, Secretary of State um, Schultz, who replaces Haig in the middle of the war, uh, Secretary of State Schultz does read the riot act uh, to the Israeli ambassador uh, in Washington, who is a particularly tough character, uh, aided, by the way, by a young Benjamin Netanyahu, who was a in the Israeli embassy in Washington at the time. And the two of them put on a display of chutzpah, which you have to read the transcript to. I mean, they basically tell the Americans to go jump in the lake. And they can, and, and Sharon does this in a much more emphatic fashion when he's meeting with uh, uh, the deputy to, to Habib, to deputy to the U.S. Uh, presidential envoy um, in meetings in, in Beirut. Uh, they basically tell the Americans to go to hell. Do you want us to let these terrorists live? Well, the American, the American involved should have said, we know they have all left. All the PLO people have left. These are civilians. He doesn't say that. He basically gets bulldozed by Sharon. Um, and I would argue that Sh- Schultz, for all of the you know, se- severity of whatever it is, he told Ambassador Moshe Arens, the Israeli ambassador at the time, uh, basically let the Israelis uh, do as they pleased. So whatever the Times reported is wrong. And you just have to read the documents, the transcripts of these meetings. And it's pretty clear who got their way. It wasn't the Americans. What can we say about Sharon's rationale here? I mean, the, the Jemael assassination is the trigger, but this comes together so quickly. It's, it, it feels like something that, that Sharon was planning to do and was waiting for, for an excuse. And it's, it's, I, I know he, he argues, you know, to the, uh, the cabinet, and they make this case to the Reagan administration that there are still militants in the camps. We have to go in and root them out. Thousands There's no of them evidence of that. Yeah, thousands of militants. There's no evidence of that. Terrorists. I, I struggle to, the term of art for the Israelis. Yes. I struggle to to think that Sharon himself even believed that. So what 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 can we say about um, just the decision to, to undertake this operation? Sharon and Israeli military intelligence and Israeli foreign intelligence service, the Mossad, know perfectly well that all the competent military personnel of the PLO had been evacuated. They knew exactly who left and they knew exactly who remained. There was nobody left, but, you know, ordinary civilians. Uh, Everybody in Lebanon has guns. So there were militia, but they were not, they were not the frontline PLO forces who fought the Israelis to a standstill at the gates of Beirut for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, The Israelis barely took the airport. They couldn't go much farther. Now they could have gone farther had they decided to take losses. They didn't want to take those losses. Um, and so they used artillery and air to, to pulverize West Beirut. Uh, and then occasionally they would attack. But these guys had held the Israelis at bay at the, at the, at the gates of Beirut for weeks and weeks and weeks. Those, 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 those fellows were all gone. The people who had fought the Israelis for years, the people who had fought them in the south and escaped, the people who fought them during the siege, they were gone. Their heavy weapons were gone. All of that was finished. He knew that. Of course he knew that. This was a transparent lie to get the Americans to go along with what he intended. What was his aim? His aim was to take over and colonize and settle Judea and Samaria. That was his aim. He and Begin wanted to take, make all of Palestine into the land of Israel. And that meant crushing Palestinian nationalism, which meant not just letting the PLO get off scot-free, which what is what happened. They left in, in, in Greek ships chartered by the French, uh, but also inflicting a terrible, terrible wound on the Palestinians uh, by doing what he and and Israeli leaders had talked about with the Falange, which is to empty the Palestinian population of Lebanon to, uh, as, as, as Bashir Jmeyan said, turn Sabra and Shatila into a zoo and a parking lot. That was his objective. It wasn't just the Falange's objective. And that was with the aim of smashing Palestinian nationalism and, and crushing the Palestinians will to resist, not in Beirut. They'd won, they'd won Beirut, but in, 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 in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, in Palestine. That was his real objective, and that was Begin's objective. That's why they were after the PLO. As someone who had, um, you know, obviously already been active in the the Palestinian cause to this point, but who lived through directly through this um, conflict, and you write about, uh, you know, having to leave Western Beirut as the Israelis are coming in and, and right. you know, kind of watching Look, we uh, left the flares, home. you know, kind of watching the flares go off. And yes, we went. We left our home and went to the university compound. Okay. Which is also in West Beirut, the American University compound. Right, right. Going to, to AUB, yes. Um, but, you know, sort of having this, this like direct firsthand uh, experience uh, in this situation, I'm, I'm, I wonder, 
you know, as we're sort of getting to a, to a wrapping up point, did this change your views of the, the Palestine situation at all? Or, or how did it affect, uh, you know, you per, your, your personal kind of, uh, views of, of, um, this entire kind of, uh, conflict that we've been talking about? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I think that for a while we were in a bit of shock. Um, these were traumatic events. I, I, it's hard for me to put myself back and think, but I'm thinking back, I'm guessing I might well have been, and my wife and I and, and others who experienced this might well have been in, in shock. I mean, uh, it was, it was, a, it was an enormous dislocation, the departure of the PLO from Beirut, the, the installation of a pro-Israeli regime in, 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 in the Lebanese government. Uh, Bashir was replaced by his brother, his older brother, Amin Jumayin, uh, and, a, and, a, and a sort of low-grade pogrom against Palestinians starts. Um, you know, harassment and so forth. No, 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 no massacres, no. But, you know, enormous ill-treatment. And we returned to Beirut. We, we left Beirut um, with the protection of the U.S. US diplomat at the time, Ryan Crocker, who was the only American diplomat left in the West Beirut embassy. The ambassador had gone taken refuge in the hills, uh, the U.S. ambassador's residence near the, the presidential palace. So we left Beirut, and then we came back a couple months later, and I taught at AUB for another year. But we were living under the shadow of a very anti-Palestinian regime. I, I couldn't get a residency permit for my infant son for the better part of a year because the 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 the, the, the inter, internal security services just you know blocked it i got it just before we left in the summer of, of 83 um I, I how did it change my view um i think everybody realized that a whole chapter had been ended the chapter where the plo was able to operate within the vicinity of palestine was over Expulsion from, from Lebanon followed a crackdown by the Syrians, followed expulsion from Jordan. That was it. The Arab states around Israel had basically acquiesced uh, one way or another. Uh, Israel, Israel and, and Lebanon negotiated a peace treaty, which was never ratified by the Lebanese. But um, basically that whole phase of Palestinian nationalism was over. And I think I realized that. I, I wrote this book after I left uh, under siege. I wrote it after I left Lebanon. Um, and it's sort of a coda for the end of a whole phase of Palestinian nationalism. I later on began to travel to the West Bank at the height of the Intifada. And I realized several years later that a new phase had begun in the occupied territories. Uh, I don't think I realized that in 1982 or 1983. But that, in fact, was the case. And the, and the first Intifada really did signal the beginning of an entirely new chapter of Palestinian nationalism, of Palestinian resistance, and of the struggle between uh, the Palestinians and their colonizer. I think on that note, that is a, a, a great place to leave it. Uh, again, the book, folks, it's The Hundred Years War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017. Uh, it continues on through two more chapters, the Intifada, the Oslo Accords, all that that history. So please go check it out uh, if you haven't already. And Professor Khalidi, uh, thank you so much for for giving us uh, so much of your time to discuss this uh we've been uh, so 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 honored to have you on the program and we really appreciate it well thank you for giving me the time to go into some of these things in this level of detail i, I do appreciate it